LARP Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a double fiction bonanza. Yeah. First, we're going to talk to Hilary Leichter, whose new book is called Terrorist Story. And then we're going to talk to Lisa Teasley, former senior editor at LARB and beloved LARB personage. <laughs> Lara Persinich, yes. And um, beloved writer to many as well. And she will be talking to me about her new collection of short stories called Fluid. Right. And I talked to Hillary about Tara's story, which was actually really hard for me to talk about because the first chapter is really, it has a very tragic, very affecting ending which I won't ruin. I won't ruin for listeners. I think you just have to go pick it up. But I really identified with the characters since it's a it's a young family with a baby named Rose. My child's middle name is Rose. Living in a cramped apartment, which is how I live in a big city. <laughs> and just wishing for some more space. And then as listeners will hear, space does magically appear. They do have to pay for it. So it really, I was over-identifying in a way that I think probably was unhealthy for me, but it's a really lovely book. It's quite beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Here, I'll say this. It made me very grateful for the things that we do have, even if we don't have a lot of space. Well, that's good. That's a great way to come away from a, a book. Glad for your own life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> feeling sorry for others, but glad for myself. Yes. Yes. Feeling sorry for the characters. But yeah, Lisa's book, I have to say, you know, lots of the stories are set in Southern California, mm. in Los Angeles. And I did identify with some of them because a number of them just have to do with kind of relationships that don't work out necessarily or mm-hmm. do, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. If there's passion, there's desire, there's anger, there's fighting. And then, you know, they might, or there's indifference and it's like, that's, it's not going to work out. And um, that reminds me of things I know lots about. Me too, I think. But the stories are, were very surprising. I would say they're kind of like a flash fiction, I guess. Lots of them are very short. They're jam-packed. You really get a punch, you get a feeling, and then it's over. Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to talk about with both Hillary Leichter and Lisa Teasley, so let's get to it. Great. Let's do it. We have Hillary Leichter joining us today. Hillary is a short story writer and author of the critically acclaimed novel Temporary. Her new book is called Terra Story. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including Harper's, The New Yorker, New York Times, and Plus One, and once, edited by me, which was a pleasure, the LA Review of Books. She is the recipient of many fellowships and awards and teaches at Columbia University. 
Terror Story is a novel based on an award-winning short story that Leichter wrote. It follows a young family, Annie, Edward, and their daughter, Rose, who live in cramped quarters in a big city, surviving but financially strapped. One day, a woman named Stephanie comes over, and when she opens the closet door, they discover a magic terrace, which immediately disappears once Stephanie leaves, and only appears again when she comes over. Suddenly, these tight, restricted lives take a turn for the magical and the tragic. The rest of the book moves back and forward in time, following these characters as they deal with their desires, their grief, their many loves, and many losses. It's a profoundly lovely book. Hilary Leichter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. I think a good place to start is with the terrace that appears in the first chapter of the book that was initially a standalone story. And it appears when a coworker of Annie's, who's one of the main character, comes over. Her name's Stephanie. She opens the closet door. Suddenly, instead of a closet, there's a beautiful, magical terrace waiting for them. And that's where they spend their evening and a lot of other evenings to come. What happened? What what made you think of this as a premise? Oh, it's a great question. And I have an answer, but I think the real answer is that I don't know. And I think that's the real answer for where a lot of books come from. It was an idea that just kind of arrived on me. The circumstances of my life, though, mimicked the characters in the book at the time. I was living with my husband in a very, very tiny Brooklyn apartment. And it was very cute. It was adorable, but it was like 400 square feet. And we had to climb over each other to get anywhere in (laughs) to the living room, to the kitchen. So I was thinking a lot about closeness and intimacy and what it would mean to have a little more space. And I think especially for our generation, this idea of buying a house or expanding your family is much more complicated than it was for our parents. It's fraught and it's not necessarily possible in the way that it used to be. So all of those ideas were percolating, mostly just wanting a balcony for myself. And that's when I wrote the short story. That was 2017. And then it was published in 2020 at the beginning of lockdown. And I reread it. And I don't often reread things that I wrote a long time ago, but I I reread it and I thought, wow, this means something completely different now. This is about this moment that we're experiencing. And I was fascinated and really curious about what it meant to feel so locked in and claustrophobic and also so distant from everyone in my life. At the same time, both of those feelings were paired together and it was this really interesting paradox. And then that combined with the collective grief that we were all feeling the fear that we were all feeling, I think, and the personal grief that I was feeling. So now I kind of think of it as I went back to my short story where I found a novel hiding in the closet, Mm -hmm. kind of like Annie and Edward finding a terrace hidden in the closet of their apartment. And I didn't think that at the time, but looking back, it was almost like the emotional journey of the book writing the book mimicked the character's emotional journey in the book. 
finding more space where there once wasn't any at all. I mean, it's so interesting you say that because the issue of space in this book, it's really fraught. It isn't straightforward. The person who creates it, Stephanie, she, as we sort of learn from a chapter further on in the book, she has this kind of magical power where she can create more space in the world. And you can't really call it a blessing that it, she creates more space, but she is creates it around herself. She is mm-hmm. extremely lonely. She's nicknamed the fortress, another sort of architectural metaphor in the book. And so space is not necessarily just a good. No, yeah. And space has a lot of metaphoric resonance for me, both in fiction and in life. I think we use the idea of space to talk about all sorts of relationships. And there's this idea of holding space for people, which I think is really beautiful. But it also confuses me, if I'm honest, on a sentence level, that idea, am I allowed to enter that space that you're holding for me? Or are you holding the space and therefore creating more distance between us? And a lot of times in my life, I've felt these conflicting feelings of wanting everyone to just kind of attack me with love, you know, even if I'm not (laughs) requesting it and also wanting to be left completely alone. I think those Mm. feelings go together sometimes. So yeah, the metaphoric idea of space was really, really fascinating to me. In addition to the literal resonance in just thinking about the space that you have in your life and do you have enough? Do you have too much? Does having too much leave you alone in some way? Does not having enough bring you closer to the people around you? Or is it the inverse? And I like the ideas that aren't aren't neat or aren't easily resolved. I think those are the the meaty kind of protein-packed ideas that novels subsist on. And Stephanie is, you know, this tragic figure. She has a superpower, but no one ever really gets to see it. It doesn't bring her love. It doesn't bring her fame the way that some of the superpowers we're familiar with do for the people who have them. It's just something that's hers and it's private and it's scary, but it's the way that she interacts with the world. And I love the idea that a really, really profound emotion can kind of extend beyond its own perimeter and become something extraordinary. And that's sort of what happens for Stephanie. She uh, She's so lonely that her loneliness takes on this new shape. Yeah, it's, it has struck me before. I mean, as just like a personal thing, but I think at a certain point in your life, you realize that no matter how much you might want something, your internal desires and your internal states have no influence on the actual world. And then maybe, maybe that's just becoming an adult essentially, but that there's a moment, or at least for me, was a moment of realization, but the world has no obligation to grant it for me. But for Stephanie, it's literalized. And she sort of says, you know, if she were asked to explain where this power comes from, it's just a deep longing. And so she does have this power to create something in the world that's just inside of her and sort of externalize it. But yeah, as you say, it's really tragic in the end. I really love what you said. I think that's so beautiful and so true. And I was thinking a lot about 
what happens to those emotions that we have that have nowhere to go and nowhere to live except inside of us. And desire is one of them and hope is one of them, fear, anxiety. And they're all emotions that are also kind of cousins to fiction. They're projecting something into the world that isn't there and doesn't exist. And I like the idea that even though these things don't exist or don't necessarily happen just because we want them, by wanting them, they are a part of the world. And that tension between what's real and what's imagined and how the things we imagine are so, they loom large in our lives and they exist. They're there. And I think the same way about fiction too. Fiction writers talk a lot about how our work isn't real, but the minute we write it, it becomes a part of the world. Yeah. And Terrace Stories, what the book is named after, is it is what Annie and Edward the main couple, the fibs, the lies, the little stories that they tell, the fictions that they tell on the terrace. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you write something that's like, they told the stories in order to fill the emptiness of the terrace. Did you ever feel that when you wrote fiction, you were filling some kind of emptiness? Or when you tell a little fib or a little lie? Wow, that is such a hard question. Probably. I know. know. (laughs) I mean, you're probably right. Like, why is one compelled to write a novel? The world certainly doesn't need more of them. There's so many. No one is clamoring for more novels. There are so many published every year. I think the compulsion to make art and specifically novels must come from, if not a desire to fill a kind of emptiness, a desire to sort of tear open the world and make it larger. And I think art is the thing that makes the world larger. I'm specifically interested in books that interrogating what the novel can still do and why it should still exist and what it can do that nothing else can do and searching through that in both of my books. So I think we can go to the inverse of that. That's also a really big part of this book which is population versus extinction. Mm -hmm. So Lydia, who's Annie's mother, one of the central characters in the second chapter, she's a writer who specializes in writing about extinction. Her final piece is about the extinction of extinction. And the world that these characters populate is very similar to ours. There's many differences. One of them is that most of the creatures in the world have gone extinct or are well on their way. Why is that part of the book? Why did that feel central to you? I think in a book about space, it has to also be about time. And Mm. so then kind of without my permission, it forced me to think about the beginnings of things and the ends of things and where things end and where things begin. And the kind of existential horror in Stephanie's power making the world larger is this idea that something could expand limitlessly forever. Something could continue to grow and grow and grow until you can't see the beginning or the end of it. I think it's impossible though, writing right now, not to think in some way about the end of things. And I don't know if that's something that every generation thinks about in their art or if it's more pressing right now, but I do feel the future pushing down on me 
when I'm writing and the question of whether there will be a future, what it means to start a family in a world where the idea of a future is in question. And even more than that, if we deserve a future or if we've lost the right to have one here, I think there's also a certain type of very stingy mentality that would consider something like extinction as a process that would make the world larger than it was before because there's more room in it if there are less things in it. But of course, that's not true. Yeah, and one of the things that Stephanie struggles with when she is creating more space is if she's actually subtracting from elsewhere. Right. One of the characters says, ah, an imperialist reading, Um, (laughs) which I thought was was really funny, but also true that there is no limitless expansion. Of course, when we are expanding, we are taking from elsewhere. I think that's usually true. I think it's true that oftentimes our comfort comes at someone else's expense or a very great cost, even if it's a cost that is not due for payment until years and years in the future. And sometimes we can't see the effects of our consumption or our expansion. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. But also true is that you have to live a life. And I did an event last week where um, someone was asking about the structure of the book. It's split into four discrete sections that overlap and are in conversation with each other. And they were asking why I structured it that way. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it like this before that moment, but it's a book written in compartments, not chapters or stories, but compartments. And I think it might be a little bit of a commentary on the way you have to compartmentalize to exist right now, but also the way in which you can't compartmentalize if you want to feel anything and know anything about the world. Right. I've been calling them chapters, but... Yeah, I've been calling them... I mean, they are chapters. I just love that idea that, yeah, it's like a manifestation of the what you have to do with your mind to exist right now. Yeah. So if the book is also looking toward the future, there's a lot of moments where it's also struggling with what happened in the past mm. and figuring out how to make space for that as well. And if if memory takes up space and how it exists. I'm curious about how you think memory, I have some guesses as to this, but how you think <laughs> memory sort of works in this book? Because a lot of the time, I think almost every chapter ends with the characters struggling with the fact that the only thing they have left is a memory. And they're grieving it or they're accepting it or they're, they're just battling with that. Do you think of things that way? Do you think of memory as, as one of the things that we have left? I guess, yes. But also, I think of memory as something separate from events that have actually occurred. Mm. I think memory is closer to hope and to desire than it is to history. <laughs> whatever that word means. But so for me, yeah. And some of the memories that the chapters end on are chronologically bent. It's like, we're ending at this moment, but this might not have been how things ended, but this is 
what this character remembers. And so that's where we're going to stop the story. And I like this idea that memory is a kind of art making. It's a kind of collage of experience and hope and fiction. And it can also be a map for what happens in the future as well. And thinking about the past as something that reverberates in all directions. You know, I was thinking a lot about also where books come from, which is kind of where we started this conversation. And, you know, there's always that question that you get in an interview, what inspired this novel or what was the seed for this novel? And sometimes with writing my books, I'm I'm less thinking about what has already happened and using that as fuel to create a narrative. And I'm sort of projecting myself into what will happen next. And with my first novel, Temporary, I was thinking a lot about my current status as a gig worker and all of the zany jobs that I had to take and thinking through where I would want that to lead for me and what kind of life I wanted to make. And then with Tara's story, I was thinking a lot about what it means to have a family. And um, I like this idea that books reverberate in all directions through future, through memory, and that if you're thinking about all timelines, your book can be inspired by something that hasn't even happened yet. So in this book, there are multiple timelines. Characters sort of travel in between them and different people populate different timelines. Maybe a sort of a different place to take this is the ways in which the plot works in this book. So in thinking about how to structure the book, I was thinking again about space. And the formal challenge that I set for myself was, okay, this is a book about a family that finds a terrace hidden in their apartment. And that's fun. And I could just like write a book about that and that would be great. But what if I could make the book feel like it was expanding and contracting for the reader too? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? You know, how do we feel space indicated in prose? And I thought a lot about this. You know, I I didn't want to use visual tricks, which, you know, I love a book where there are or footnotes and text kind of in concrete poetry. But I I didn't think that that was the thing that would make a reader feel the space expanding or shrinking. And the answer became structure and perspective. And so part of the challenge was thinking about what do these characters know about each other? What don't they know? And how can I kind of create this rotating space where we got to see the hidden knowledge in each chapter that has come before. So I think perspective is really the thing that makes a relationship feel spacious (laughs) and the things we know about each other and the things we don't. And even the people I know best in my life, I probably only know 70% of, of who they are and what exists inside of them. And so each section revolves around a different character. And, you know, it's not a way of saying, oh, well, you got that side of the story, but wait until you see this side of the story. It's not a canceling of everything that came before. It's a reconfiguring and a growing of what came before. And 
And so that's why I structured it the way I did. And then moving through time was essential to that because there are things we just don't know about the people who came before us and the people who will come after us in our lives, in our families, in our chosen families. And I wanted to explore that too. I wanted the book to feel like a house where you can only be in one room at a time, which is obviously that's every, that's so silly. That's every house you can always, <laughs> what am I even saying? But you have to stay in that room. And then by the time you're free to go to the next room, it's maybe 10 years later and you can only exist in each part of the house during the time that's given to you. And so you're, you're seeing the whole space, but through a long chronology and sometimes a, a fractured chronology. Yeah, it strikes me that so much of the book, it's super smart in that it is constantly playing with both the abstract definition of a word and the literal definition of a word. Mm-hmm. So you have plot, but then you also, these characters are obsessed with plots of land and where they will die, when they will die. So you also have that. And then space, but at the very end, space is also literal. They're literally yeah. in space. <laughs> and there's so much movement between the two. So it strikes me you're saying that, that you wanted a book to both, to feel like it expands and contracts. I think you almost do that like on a word by word level and that even the words kind of grow and then recede in being um, literal and abstract at the same time. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's totally um, how I think about language. I think, I think that's what a pun is, you know, when there's something hidden to the side inside a word. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. So the other thing, I mean, this is sort of looping back and maybe talking about the ways in which this book expands and contracts is one of the things that there's a lot of death in it. There's a lot of death and disappearance. There's a funny line that the characters in the second compartment say to each other. That's like, where there's death, there's bagels, which is, <laughs> which is great. And that's the only good news about death. Although, of course, you can also have bagels without death. Right. But, um, but that's actually something that I was wondering about. Like if, because I think maybe within the context of this book, like you can also turn that around and say, where there's bagels, there's death. There's death in kind of everything. And the characters fear it in varying degrees, are sort of cognizant of it in various degrees. And it affects them in different ways. I guess I'm curious about how, have you personally battled a lot with either fears of death or this feeling of like death is at every corner? (laughs) I would say not yet, because I think that one's relationship to death changes over the course of a life. And we're all dying too, all the time. So it's, it's baked into everything. I don't think I'm particularly morbid, maybe just the right amount of morbid, but death struck me as, you know, in the context of this book, it's the one room that you can't enter. You can't go there no matter what, you know, you can read about it. You can, and the chapter that you're referencing is sort of a ghost story. And, you know, you can experience death through art. So it's kindred with, with desire and with hope because it's projecting into the unknown. So it felt necessary to go there, you know? And I, I think that thinking about emotions that expand beyond their containers 
grief is maybe the biggest one because grief is sort of a, it's an emotion that attempts to replace whatever has been lost. It attempts to fill that space. And of course, that's not possible. I wonder if you could personally time travel (laughs) or expand space. Would you do it? I don't know. Expanding space seems, seems tough. Especially after writing this book, I think, I think I would dread the consequences too, too deeply. Time traveling, God, how could you say no to it though, if it were possible? I don't know where I would go. I don't know when I would go. I know nothing. But if someone offered you that experience, you know, as a writer, I would have to say yes. Yeah. Do you think you'd be a more of a historical time traveler or a personal time traveler? Definitely historical. I would want to see something that I hadn't already seen. The other thing that this book really delves into is how families are structured, how they combine, how they kind of disintegrate. And one of the lines that I thought was really beautiful, you wrote, the family is an ecosystem that sometimes goes extinct too. And what a beautiful way to think about what a family is. I guess my question is just like, how did that occur to you? Have you have you felt to be yourself a part of an ecosystem? Did you feel like you are building a new one? I think starting a family is a a moral choice and an ethical choice. And it brings up all sorts of questions about how you want to be in the world. And you're creating this... <laughs> I've said the word space 5,000 times during this interview, but you're creating this new space and you're building it maybe with one other person, maybe with many other people. And yeah, I am interested in the way families rearrange themselves or fall apart or reconstitute in unexpected configurations. But more than that, I was also curious about what it means to be alone. And I think so much of our lives are built around maybe other people's, maybe your own family unit, right? And the family unit is so hugely important in the way that we talk about the world. But some of these characters in the book are completely alone in the world. Does that make them irrelevant? Stephanie in particular can do extraordinary things, but no one's there to see them. Does that mean that she doesn't matter? Does she, the love that she puts into the world where there's no one to receive it, does it still exist? That was curious to me. And I think the answer I came to was yes, of course. And with Stephanie, she literally changes the shape of the world. And so I was just as much curious about the lives that we create with other people, but the lives that we create by ourselves and how both are relevant and both are essential. And even if you're not alone in the world, you have a solitary existence. You know, there's a world inside your head that no one else is a part of. No matter how much empathy someone has, no matter how connected you feel to someone, no matter how much intimacy there is, no one can ever be you but you. So we all inhabit these worlds that are lonely, but lonely, I think, in a profound and beautiful way. I wonder if, you know, I would say there's a number of main characters in the book, 
but the protagonists are really women. And if there's something in particular about the ways that women inhabit space that they can physically expand when you're pregnant, you are literally, literally growing space, (laughs) making space. If there's something that there's a reason that all of the characters here or the main characters are, are female. I'm sure there is. (laughs) I'm sure there is. Yeah. And I, I like the reason that you just gave. I think that was on my mind. Um, You know, multiple characters are pregnant and having kids in the book and, that idea of literal expansion is really important to the plot of the book. But I was also thinking about women writers that I wanted to be in conversation with who often write about women. And so each section is kind of an unofficial homage to a writer who has been influential in my work. And for the first section of the book, Terrace, I was thinking a lot about Muriel Spark and her work. and. Um, how playful it is, how surreal it can be, how funny it is and devastating at the same time. And then the second section, Folly, I was thinking a lot about these 1970s and 80s and early 90s um, New York writers that I really admire who are so warm and can make you laugh and break your heart in the same line. And so I was reading a lot of Grace Paley and Laurie Colwyn, and Lori Siegel. The third section is hugely inspired by Renee Gladman, whose work I just love and the way that she writes about narrative space and her prose architectures are just incredible and so influential on my work. But yeah, I was, I had all of this kind of round table of women in my head while I was writing this book. And so of course they made their way onto the page. Well, hey, that's a great place to end. Hillary, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. We've been speaking with Hillary Leichter. Her new book is called Terrace Story. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. That was Medea Ocher speaking with Hillary Leichter, author of Terrace Story. We now turn to my conversation with Lisa Teasley, author of Fluid. I'm happy to be speaking with the writer Lisa Teasley today. Lisa Teasley is the author of the short story collection Glow in the Dark, as well as two novels, Dive and Heat Signature. Her work has also been widely anthologized, most recently in the collections Flash Fiction America and The Passenger California. And she wrote and narrated the BBC documentary High School Prom. For many years, she was also my colleague here at the Los Angeles Review of Books, where she served as our fiction editor. And before that, I had the pleasure of being her student at Cal Arts, where she taught writing. She joins me to speak about her latest collection of stories entitled Fluid. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. I'm really happy to be here. So the stories in Fluid are so kind of far-ranging in location, in narration, And I'm wondering just a little bit more about the background of the collection, how long it took to assemble it, kind of how some of these stories came to you, because they don't seem wholly autobiographical. Oh, they're not autobiographical at all. But what I was thinking about in terms of the themes, most of them are regarding choice 
whether the characters are actually making the choice or thinking about making the choice, such as in Three Loves of Ava Jones, it's about euthanasia. In Random Kid in a Black Hole, it's surrogacy. In The Numerologist, it's kind of waking up to what's going on in the climate. In Death is Beautiful, there's the discussion about transhumanism, whether one can elect for immortality or if mortality is the choice. So I was thinking about the stories in terms of that, and I tried to put them in a kind of flow in terms of, since they are, as you said, such diverse characters, and in some cases, very diverse locations, the thread of the theme of choice is what I was going for. Interesting. Because I was thinking, you know, I'm just going off the title of the collection, of course, I'm being very literal, that fluidity was the theme or the overriding theme and the kind of that, you know, your life could be actually be not your last life. You could be living another life because there's this whole story about these two lovers who kind of find each other over time, over and over again and switch identities and also people kind of switching positions and switching, what else is there? Bodies, a literal fluidity and whether it brings freedom or confusion. Yes. I mean, that too, of course. So, but I must say again that there isn't much autobiographical in my fiction at all. I mean, I think that I became a fiction writer because I enjoy discovering what it is to be someone else. I, I enjoy looking at other kinds of lives that are completely different from mine. I mean, there are a few stories that perhaps I could relate to more in terms of, you know, like what goes on in my life as a Black woman. But I write about so many different kinds of people, different cultures, different genders, different spaces and times, such as, you know, there's a story about the Herero tribe genocide that I couldn't actually know what it's about, but I put myself in that place. So what is the seed of a story for you? Are you thinking around theme and going from there? Are you, you know, sometimes I imagine in these stories, they could have been based on a person that you saw and filled in a whole life. But I'm curious how how they actually come about. As a writer, I'm completely character driven. So a character will come to me and then I will think about what is their vulnerability? How do they walk into a room? Do they feel like life happens for them or happens to them? And in feeling into who this character is, and I discover what their greatest conflicts are, what their vulnerabilities are. And then the other characters kind of enter the room. So you start with a single character and everything forms around them. Exactly. So in the story about the past lives, full circle, maybe tell us which character of the two lovers you started with. In that situation, they sort of both came to me at the same time. And, you know, since it's a relationship, I mean, it's about a relationship, 
throughout time. So then the two of them, I just, I felt into who they, what their essences were. And you meet them in 1960s England when they're both alcoholics and they have two kids. And then you discover some of their other lives, like as two men on a ship, one's a captain, one's one of the men who mutinied. And, you know, without getting into giving away a lot of, of the plot, it's just that that was the case where I felt both of them at once. I wondered if some of that story, I don't think it's you know supposed to be all metaphor or all symbolism, but this sense of, you know, a deep lineage kind of wearing our past on our present and that cultural grounding that we all feel depending on what present identity that we have. I feel like that was a theme that recurred a bit. You know, there's this other story where a woman meets a man and they kind of instantly fall in love and they hug and she forgives him for everything in his past, but way beyond, you know, his past, his Vikings, like the the Vikings who pillaged and raped, like everything he's kind of done and maybe even not done into the future. This way, again, to kind of go back to the fluidity of how much is kind of in us from our past in the present moment when whatever shames we live with based on that. So I think about a lot personally, just about the, uh, the corruption of memory and that time is fluid, just as you're pointing out. And so in meeting someone if they feel familiar, then there is, it's like there's a suggestion of the past and there's a suggestion of the future that you might want with this person. Or you're already thinking about your past with others and hoping for a different future with this particular person in comparison to how you've, how you've interacted, you know, an intimate relationship. So yes, time is fluid to me. And so I think that that is probably very much a part of of all the stories, but I never thought about it like that until you brought it up. And how about, you know, things like identity, racial identity, how much you want the characters to like either transcend or kind of be in who they are, like maybe from the outside, from an outside perspective or pushing up with that tension. Well, I think that I don't want anything for them. When I'm writing, I'm just trying to stay in the truth of what it is to be human. And so I try to stay out of any kind of judgment of what they're doing, whether it's something horrific, such as in modus operandi, when she's basically murdering her partner's father. I wasn't in judgment of her as I was writing her because it's in her point of view. And so I had to stay with how it is that this all makes sense to her. So in terms of race, again, in modus operandi, she feels inferior to him and his architect father. She feels like she comes from a different class, different race. She's very behind in terms of waking up to equality. So I didn't want for her to wake up. I just had to write her where she is and honor that, you know. So yeah, that's, it seems like a difficult 
position to stay out of your character's way as the author. You know, it's kind of this dance maybe between what you know and what the character knows. So is that something that you have always done or have come to do, just not wanting to have it portray people with that detachment or judgment as the author? Well, I always thought that empathy came first as opposed to sympathy or pity or even compassion, because empathy is actually feeling into where someone is without judging whatever is going on. Because to me, it's hard for me to believe a character if the author is telling me what they feel about this character. I'm too removed from the character as a reader if the author is telling me what to think about everything. Yeah, I think there's a, there is a strong sense here of kind of unmitigated desire from the characters that I don't think is being intercepted by you telling their stories. You know, and it's not very self-conscious either because we can see that they really passionately want things. And in the case of the modus operandi story that you mentioned, yeah, it's someone who wants, maybe as the reader, I'm judging her thinking like these Toby, the boyfriend who takes her to his father's house and she's all impressed by the the money and the architecture and the sun and all these. I'm thinking, oh, like, don't downplay yourself just because you're around these bozo guys. But she clearly doesn't see that. And I'm not getting that sense from you either that that's not the story you're painting. So it's like, and the story really becomes, okay, she sees this life. She wants it. And um, here's how she's going to get it. And a similar thing happens with a story that I thought was so strange and amazing called The Girl in the Case. Oh, yes. Bizarre. (laughs) Really strange of this assistant who works for a lawyer who wants, I'm not quite sure even, to be his girlfriend perhaps with some money involved, it's a little unclear and um, makes this test for him. Her desire was very strong. Right. That story, which was originally published in Joyland, I got a lot of feedback in terms of purely just the sex. Like, it seemed as if no one was thinking about the positions of power or anything. It was just more like they saw her as being sexually free. And I had no intent in terms of showing whether this was about power, whether this was about gaining power. It was, it was more like, again, to me, it was a woman with agency who decided this is what I want to do. It's just, it was her choice. I see everyone in choice. I guess maybe that's, that's my point of view in life, perhaps, is you're in choice as to, the action that you will take or not take, or how you're going to feel about whatever situation that you're in. Whether it's happening to you or for you is how you see it. So in writing a story, I just stay completely out of driving the plot. I never plot out a story. I never plot out a novel. I just go with this character's psyche, like the engine of how this human works. And then I'm just as surprised in the end. Cool. So it sounds like a fun, fun ride. 
is it can feel a bit like being captive by someone else because I don't feel in control of it. What I do feel as a writer, what I feel is, as my job is to orient the reader, let them know where they are, what the character looks like, you know, what kind of gestures they make, which tells the reader how they're feeling in the moment, you know, whether they're touching their chest or messing with their hair, these kinds of gestures that, you know, show that the person is either distracted or uncomfortable or in charge of the situation. That part I take care in, in the edit, to make sure that the reader is not lost in the room. I want to go back to the sex in that story because, you know, there is like a, a lot of sex in this book. It's not shy about that. It's a sexy book. A lot of the stories, the kind of passion between the characters is is pretty hot. And I wonder, in that story, how are you going about portraying the sex? I mean, how do you like to write sex or what do you try to avoid? I don't think you read like that much hot sex in contemporary fiction. There's really nothing that I would avoid sexually if wherever the character wants to go sexually i just go there i've always been comfortable writing sex and it's it's not premeditated it's like once it's there it's there some of my favorite writers i've wondered why they have avoided sex because it's if it's a part of the character's life why are we shut out of it such as thomas bernhard i loved everything that he's written but i always wonder why it's as if Perhaps he was asexual, and so then all of the characters are asexual. But just for me as a writer, I feel if sex is a part of the story, then it belongs in the narrative. And you try to avoid any cliched language or, you know, I mean, I think the thing that was so surprising about this story with the lawyer is just the the situation was very unexpected. You know, it's like this whole sex scene that comes about because of strip poker unannounced. And then it just kind of devolves from there into with a blow up sex doll and (laughs) Carla Bruni's face uh, attached to it. It was just, it's very surprising. And yet, you know, the way you describe this woman's body, like clearly she's very beautiful and it's not completely unfamiliar, but certainly it, it was uh, surprising. <laughs> I'll say thank you to that. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think, you know, you do mention feminism in here. And um, from this feminist perspective, a lot of these women are kind of aware of the power of their bodies using sex to kind of get what they want and aware kind of of the privilege their beauty affords them. I wondered how you think about that. I think that that's the case with maybe the two or three that we're talking about. But in Chimera, for example, the narrator is talking about the demise of her relationship with her partner, who is also a woman, but their pronouns are they, them, and theirs. And so I'm not sure if that's not clear in the the narrative, but in that situation, it's really about fighting and about race as well. And just all of the 
the stickiness that we bring in relationships. And the, the same thing with the three loves of Eva Jones, because Eva is involved with three different women, but it's not in this case about that. There's no struggle in feminism. It's more about let me be who I am and stop, you know, trying to tell me what to do from Eva's point of view or kind of bouncing from woman to woman. And with the main point being the one that is in a coma that she's worrying about. So I feel like it's, it's a lot of different kinds of themes. So I'm not presenting feminism and I'm not, not presenting it. Do you know what I mean? Like I never, I never write in terms of, I don't have an agenda other than showing the truth of what it is to be human from all kinds of perspectives that interest me or happen to find me or I happen to find. I mean, there's also stories here in which people don't really come together or they come together later, you know, or there's still possibility there, but things just really don't work out. I thought you you really portray that with with honesty because it's it doesn't seem always so worthy perhaps of a story when two people meet and just something doesn't spark, you know, but I like that you give space for that. Maybe you could talk about that. So as you bring that up, that what comes to mind, maybe that's, it's not the right story to, to talk about in terms of this, but like Course in Miracles, when you come to meet three people who are just meeting and you don't feel as if there will be a connection at all. And then, but it starts to slightly deepen, even though they are all perfect strangers. I enjoy, after it's written, I enjoy looking at how people can navigate toward each other, even though it seems as if they may not make it. And even if they don't, quote unquote, make it, there still was a connection, which is valid to me. Yeah, I think um, Mary Gateskill is a writer who I've noticed in some of her stories will kind of fill out a relationship that ends up becoming estranged. And this brief connection of people and then disconnection. And I can't think of a ton of other writers who do that because it is it is valid to have someone touch your life. It doesn't go away. And I do get the sense here of a kind of, yeah, and maybe this is a little bit what we were talking about in the beginning, almost this cosmic way that people circle around each other, come into each other, and then go apart again. And I wonder, you know, as someone who I'm sure has had lots of experiences, if that's something that's meaningful to you personally, if that's like touched your life in ways that you would be willing to talk about? I feel like what's been perhaps strange for me is that ever since I was a kid, I would see kind of like either a light around someone, whether it was a neighbor or a teacher or a new classmate or something, and I would know that there was some kind of connection. In other words, most of the people in my life, if not every single one of them, as soon as I met them, I knew there was a connection. I don't think that that's common, you know, but I tend to invest emotionally. And I'm one of those people who keeps people. But I'm also not at all, I can have a, a connection with someone in the elevator you know, just for that moment, you know, like two strangers sharing a joke or something that we just saw. All of those things to me are beautiful. And so 
I'm really, I love people and I'm open to connecting. I wonder, you know, for you having lived in Los Angeles, but then having spent time other places too, I, I like how the stories, they're not very LA focused, but many of them are set in Los Angeles and kind of there's a way in which, I can't remember which story, but one character sees LA and it's changed. Maybe it's in the past lives. It's like, it's changed so much, but there's something like still very essential that they're able to connect to or that they see as being constant. Is that, since I know that you grew up here, is that how you experienced the city? Yes. So I did. I was born here and then we actually moved to Durham, North Carolina. So I was a kid I was surrounded by the woods and a creek running through it and turtles were my friends. And and there is a story that's set in North Carolina in the collection as well, late blooming. Los Angeles, we returned to LA when I was about seven. So I grew up here and then I lived in New York in the 90s. And then a little before the pandemic, I was living in Bangkok and I travel a lot. And what I've What I love about travel is that place is a character to me as well. Like the terrain has a psyche to it to me. In other words, the environment affects us, you know, the land, the smell, the light, the atmosphere. So that's very important to me as a writer to get the character of the terrain into the story, whether it's my home city or it's somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, these uh, stories do cover the globe. I think we get a sense of each place that you write about, even though they're shorter stories as well. Are you working on more? Do you think that you'll write another novel? What is up next that we can expect? Well, I'm definitely working on another novel. Right now, though, I'm working on an opera libretto, commissioned opera libretto. And so as soon as I turn in the polished final I'll concentrate on the novel. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. That was Lisa Teasley. Her new collection of stories is called Fluid. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.